I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. everybody welcome back to another edition of bavarian podcast works this is chuck smith and i'm here to bring you the weekend warm-up bfw's weekly show where we hit on all the latest and greatest news of the week uh apologies for setting this show out a little bit late just because we had some bpw business to attend to which we hope to announce in a couple of weeks and also because we had a glut of podcasts over the past few weeks with the flagship show. Well, actually, I could even go back to last weekend's post-game show with, against Leverkusen, the flagship show, a preview for Lazio, a post-game for Lazio. So we did want to space it out a little bit, but mostly this was pushed back because of some meetings that we had. So uh, no big concern there. Uh, we'll always keep the schedule, but... Uh, this time we just needed to delay the release a few hours. And as you'll notice on the site, the weekend warm up column will also be delayed about 90 minutes after its usual 9 a.m. Eastern time slot as well. So now that I got the business part of this out of the way, where do you start on a week like this? I mean, just crazy results, a blowout loss to Leverkusen, a surprising defeat at the hands of Lazio in the Champions League. And then everything in between, you had rumors about Thomas Tuchel being on the hot seat, Hansi Flick potentially coming in, Alfonso Davies maybe signing a deal or agreeing to a deal with Real Madrid, Bayern Munich potentially having interest in Florian Wirtz and Teo Hernandez. I mean, <laughs> you could pick any one of a number of things to talk about. And they would all be interesting because they're all very pertinent to this Bayern Munich squad, not just this season, but where it's going in the future. But what I wanted to really address is the current state of the team and the rut that they are in. And it's bad. I mean, there were fans that have shown up at least twice this week to Sabinerstrasse voicing their displeasure. This morning, Kerry Howe of Sky Sport distributed a pic of what seemed like a younger guy and an older woman who took the time. And I thought about this and it really did crack me up. These people were so incensed at the state of the team that they got up, made signs, took time out of their day, went over to Sabinerstrasse and waited for Tuchel and the players to arrive for training just so they could show their displeasure. That's when you know you really struck a nerve. When you're pissing people off to the point where they are taking time out of their day to make signs, show up at your workplace and voice their displeasure, it's not good. And listen, I'm not even saying it's right. If there's any city in the world that knows anything about people showing up at their workplace to harass athletes, it's Philadelphia. Seems to happen on a yearly basis here. But it seemed like these people were more of the peaceful protesting type rather than uh, getting violent or anything like that, like we might see in some other places. But either way, what it does show is that fans are fed up. Fans are frustrated. 
And I think things really came to a head on Thursday because we saw what was, if true, an extremely damning quote come out of Thomas Tuchel. Now, we don't know how valid this is, right? It's coming from Sky Sport journalist Ricardo Basile, who cited a source in the team circle. And what that information was, uh, I'll read it verbatim. Sky Sport Germany's Ricardo Basile quotes a source from the team circle, according to which Thomas Tuchel is said to have told his players in the dressing room after the game against Leverkusen, you're not as good as I thought. Then I just have to adapt to your level. Now, that might be true. Maybe the players aren't as good. I would probably disagree with that, but if that's the coach's assessment, then it is what it is. However, to say that after a really crippling loss to Leverkusen, to say that to a room full of men who you are supposed to be motivating and inspiring to elevate yourself above them when they're struggling and you're struggling, basically absolving yourself of the blame for what is going on, that's it. I don't know what else they could do about it. I think that it was a horrible, horrible thing to say. I think it puts the coach in a horrible light. And this is about as bad as I can remember something getting in recent history, at least since I've joined BFW, which was way back in the pep era. So where does Bayern Munich go from there? How do they recover from that? As I said, when you look at that kind of statement, it'd be one thing if the coach was out there tactically being brilliant and the players just were making mistake after mistake. This whole collapse, this and this, to say it's a collapse is, is funny because they haven't lost that much this year, but they're not playing up to their ability. But for this to happen, it's equally on the players and the coach. So either side absolving themselves of blame on this would be ridiculous. And I think we've seen several players step up to the plate and take blame. We've seen Thomas Muller, Harry Kane, Matthijs De Ligt, Yeshua Kimmich, Leon Goretzka. They're among the players who said, we're just we're not good enough right now. Tuchel, meanwhile, is telling the players that he has to coach down to their level. So yes, there's a huge disconnect. This is It's not going to work from this point forward, if that's true. And, and again, we will place the caveat in. We don't know if it's true. I mean, there are a million different anonymous quotes that come out of locker rooms. It could be. I mean, it's absolutely believable. But if it is true, it's about the end. That's the final nail in the coffin of the Thomas Tuchel era. Because anything that happens from here, it can't save his standing in that locker room. And yes, players want to be told honest assessments. They want to have coaches be up front with them. But the way, if that is true, he said it, put him above the squad, which in this case, like I have to be honest, he is just as much as just as much to blame as they are because he's putting out bad lineups. He's experimenting with formations they haven't run all season against Leverkusen in the biggest match. Those were coaching decisions. And for as much as you can crush individual player moments, and certainly they've all had bad moments this season, a lot of the things that are going wrong stem from his ideas and philosophies. You bought Harry Kane to be a target man. I don't care how he played at Tottenham. He needs to be in front of the net. Yet we've spent, what, two-thirds of the season here with Kane acting as if he's a central midfielder. 
you know, you've made decisions to keep playing Leroy Sané and Jamal Musiala as they've scuffled along and held the team back. You stuck with Kingsley Coman earlier this season before he was hurt when he was absolutely brutal and has not refound that magic that he had under Julian Nagelsmann or even how he looked under Hansi Flick. It, it just hasn't worked. And yes, Leon Gretzka at times has struggled. Joshua Kimmich has struggled. Thomas Muller has not always been at his best. But either way, the decisions that Tuchel's making from week to week are setting this team up for failure. And I believe part of the reason that the players have struggled is because they probably don't believe in what the coach's messaging is. They probably don't think that the coach believes in that. And all of these things that we've seen drop over the last week, and there, believe me, there has been plenty, it all leads to the same conclusion, that this union is not going to work. And I'm not going to sit here and call for his job. I'm just stating the obvious at this point. There's a big disconnect. There are a lot of stories floating around, some of which, some of which may be true, some maybe not. But either way, there's a lot of smoke. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And Bayern Munich is an inferno right now. So hopefully, at this point... The board is taking a look at things. They're assessing what the future holds for Tuchel. They're assessing what the future holds for this roster. Now, the one thing that concerns me above all of this is through Tuchel's tenure at Bayern Munich, he's had more say in personnel decisions and the strategic vision of building this roster than any coach in recent history. You could go back to Pep because Pep got whatever he wanted because he was Pep. But with Tuchel, it seems as if that whole change in hierarchy when Khan and Brazo were sacked, it left Tuchel as the man with the plan. And since they brought in more and more players, we've seen Driesen come in as the CEO. We've seen Christoph Frink come in as the sporting director. Now you'll have Max Ebrel. Tuchel has been the man with the biggest voice. And it seems like that everyone surrounding him is taking his lead on what the team needs and what players they should pursue. And with that, you now have a a club that has based its vision around this coach for the past year. And it, there's a very significant chance that the coach one way or the other will not be here after June. Now, the funny thing about all of this, amid all of this controversy surrounding Tuchel and Bayern Munich and whether it's working or not, you now have effectively a bidding war on coaches between Bayern Munich and FC Barcelona because Barca has interest in both Thomas Tuchel and Hansi Flick. Now, Flick, of course, is one of the top names that many people are clamoring for to return to Bayern Munich should things sway the way we all think they will with Tuchel being let go this summer. Admittedly, I was a massive Flick fan. I took Flick's backing in the Flick versus Brazo war. I thought the coach needed more say at that point because he was committed to the club. He should have a little more say than he had. Not saying any coach should get whatever they want, but we really went from a situation at Bayern Munich where Flick had no say and could get no players he wants. And don't come at me with Thiago Dantas. That was a loan. All right. It's not like Bayern Munich put out anything substantial for that. Let's be real. At that time, Brazo was driving all of those transfers. And some of you will say, well, he wanted Bunasar. No, all of that nonsense was driven off of quotes that, that, that SAR issued that Flick told him he liked him as a player after they had a friendly. Lo and behold, Byron played a friendly against SAR or SAR squad at the time. Brazo was there. Flick was there. They needed a right back option because Pavard was hurt. 
they got SAR. This was not like a push where, where Flick mounted a campaign or even Brazo mounted a campaign. I don't fault either of those two for that. They just needed someone for coverage. They went out and got Bunasar and it didn't work. But that was not some campaign by Flick. So the SAR and Dantas myths that are out there, I mean, yes, the, Flick had a say in those, but those were also Brazo deals. So when you look at this whole situation, you go back to that time with Flick having no say, and this really becoming the impetus for this whole war to happen, which eventually resulted in Flick leaving. I was on Flick's team the whole time with that. I thought it was BS and nonsense that he that the club let him leave, let him walk away, and that they didn't do more to be able to salvage that relationship. And with that, you had this whole new era begin to start because Flick was gone. He went on to the German national team where, quite frankly, he failed. You had Nagelsmann come in and Bayern Munich has not recovered since that point. But the problem with Flick, and as much as I admire the job that he did and when he stepped in at Bayern Munich and provided them with two really like fantastic seasons, I don't know that he can recapture that magic at this point. This is a different time at Bayern Munich. It's a different situation. The roster is in flux. And yes, I think Flick would have some good ideas. But this group might be broken. After Flick left, we had Nagelsmann come in, who thoroughly put cracks in the foundation of the team because, again, bad lineup decisions constantly experimenting with formations, players moving all over the place. Then you had his brilliant idea that they didn't need a striker. And how did that work out? You followed Nagelsmann, who, again, I don't think was terrible, but he couldn't contain himself to the point where he could be consistent with anything. And his tinkering and nonstop touching of everything led to his demise. So then you bring in Tuchel, who from the get-go almost seemed like he wanted to establish that he was the alpha in the pack, started benching players, started using the media to communicate what he felt about players, which was a, a huge red flag that specifically I brought up at that time last year when this happened. As soon as he went down that road, I knew this was going to be a tough union. And then as things went on, we saw all of the same traits that we, we saw with Nagelsmann's beginning. Is By the time Nagelsmann figured it out, Bayern Munich fired him. I mean, I think actually at that point, Nagelsmann had started to come around on things. I'm not saying he was a great manager or even good at Bayern Munich, but he had started to figure out what was working and what wasn't, and then went on a ski trip and got canned. With Tuchel, it seems like he's been in this constant battle to show that his way is the best way, that he's the smartest person in every room, and that he needs everyone to see that with every decision that he makes whether it's personnel in a lineup, whether it's a formation, whether it's tactics, it's not sinking in. And it seems like there's always a motive with him that it's more about him than it is the team. And that's what has bothered me from the beginning. It's what's bothered me about him at most of his tenures. Listen, you can say what you want about him. The fact he took that Chelsea side and got them to a Champions League and won it, I mean, that's impressive. I will never take that away from the guy. But everything that he's done at Bayern Munich it seems that it's about Thomas Tuchel rather than about Bayern Munich, which with the club's motto and the club's family atmosphere, it was never going to fly. And especially when this turned into openly talking about replacing established veterans, leaving some of your top players on the bench for extended stretches, what he's done to Matthijs Delict is, is flat out awful. 
it's bad because it's hurt the Lick's relationship with the club. Because of course, in this point, through all of this with Delict, he's got no backing from anybody at the club. So why would he be inclined to hang around for this mess? A team that's now in turmoil, a roster that could be turned over. You have a foundational piece as a center back who probably is going to leave because quite frankly, why should he stay? He's playing for a coach that has no use for him. And even if that coach leaves, there was no one at the club that stepped in and said, we just spent 80 million on this guy. He was our best player last season. What is going on and why is he benched? I get that most front offices want to give a coach autonomy, but again, another massive red flag. How did it fall off so far for Delict? How have middling performances from other defenders been ignored all season? It just doesn't make sense. So yes, this whole situation with Tuchel, it has come to a head and Flick could be the benefactor. And I think Byron is desperate. I think that they are more than willing to spend for Flick or Zabi Alonso. After that, I think it's a steep drop off. I think you have those two as the primary candidates and both of them are probably looking from Byron, at Bayern Munich from afar and probably questioning why they would want to make that move. For Flick, it's all risk. He's a legend at the club. Didn't work out with Germany, but what he did at Bayern Munich can't be taken away. Could he fix things? I think there's a possibility he could, but it's not definite. And I don't know if he wants to ruin his legacy just for the sake of taking a job when most likely he could get another gig and prove himself there. As for Zabi Alonso, he's going to have multiple options. Liverpool is among them. We know he won't be going to Real Madrid this summer, but there's also been talk that he would stay at Bayer Leverkusen. So Alonso, he, he's got places to go. He's got the security of staying where he is and, and continuing to build with that core roster group of his and really do great things. Or he could jump to Liverpool, have massive financial backing, be in the Premier League, and really show the world who he is as a strategist. Bayern Munich can have a tough time getting either of two those two coaches at this point. And I can't for the life of me understand how this is all going to work out positively. And I'm not even being negative with it, but there's so much going on. I don't know roster-wise who they're going to keep. And I'm sure we'll dive into all of these subjects you know, as the weeks go on. But you've got a lot of players who are aging. You've got some players coming up on contracts and not specifically running out on contracts, but you've got key players that are entering their lame duck season. So Byron has to either sell or extend. And a lot of those situations are all up in the air. I mean, Byron is not in a position to let players walk away for free. So a lot of key decisions are going to have to be made. And one of those, unfortunately, is going to be with Delict, who is not entering a lame duck season. He's got the security of a contract, but all season Delict has heard that he's not good enough. He can't progress the ball forward, that he is not as good as Ronald Araujo from FC Barcelona, who has been uh, Tuchel's dream boy for the last, uh, what, four or five months here. It's a problem. And when it all comes down to it, you just look at the Delict situation. And you have to say, this is the total example of what is going wrong with this team. You've taken a great player who was the team's best player last season. You have alienated him. He's got no backing and now probably has a very shaky future. 
You have a coach who almost no one believes in at this point, who's probably going to be sacked and you have no defined candidate to take over. You've got a full, a roster full of players who, no matter what they say publicly, if all, if any of this stuff is true, that's been out there, they're probably a bit unhappy. They're probably feeling a lot underappreciated and they're probably not feeling all that motivated. And I know, listen, it's easy for me to sit here and say they should be motivated 100% all the time because they're professionals. But when you have a superior like that, someone who, if this is all true, talks down in, in to you in that way that puts themselves above you, I, I, I can't buy into that. And listen, I think we've probably all worked for someone like that. And I know when I was running my own teams and even how I run BFW, I don't put myself above anybody. And maybe that's the wrong philosophy, but I feel like to be an effective leader, you have to be down in the trenches once in a while. You have to be doing the grunt work and putting in the time and showing by example, how to get things done that you can't just sit atop a throne, tell everyone you're smarter than them and expect them to do the same quality of work that you think you're capable of. And I think that's where Tuchel is. And I think that the, the players are below, sitting there below him, looking up, saying, what has this guy done since he's gotten here, except lose more times in 43 games than anyone in recent memory? I mean, it's it's bad. It's a very bad state. The Licht is probably out. Getting Flick or Alonso is going to be tough, and Tuchel is probably going to get sacked, all of which leads Bayern Munich to, a, I mean, a serious state of uncertainty. This is not good at all. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and look at a couple of other things. Uh, specifically, want to talk about Leroy Zane and his issues of late. We'll also talk about some of those rumors with Florian Verts and Teo Hernandez and and maybe how they could be the impetus for the major roster overhaul that we've all heard about. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Everyone, welcome back to the Weekend Warm-Up Podcast. Appreciate you hanging in there. Wanted to send a quick note. If you have not checked out our post-game coverage from Bayer Leverkusen or Lazio, check that out. If you didn't listen to our flagship show last week, you can always go back on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast and check that out as well. Uh, a lot of consistent themes are carrying through, and every time I do a podcast, there's always a little bit of carryover from previous one. So check those out if you get a chance. But at, before we took the break, I talked about Leroy Zane and I'm not going to beat this into the ground. It's very obvious. And I think that if Tuchel goes out and he plays Zane this weekend against Bochum, it's going to tell us a lot about Tuchel's mindset at this point, because Zane is not just struggling. It looks like mentally and physically, he just looks, doesn't look as confident, clearly is beat up a little bit, clearly is tired. You can't keep rolling that player out there. And it seems like Tuchel will be content to do that. And I know that there are injuries. Coman and Gnabry severely hurt Tuchel's ideas about how flexible he can be with his wingers. 
But he does have Musiala. He does have Matisse Tell. He's got Chupo, who he could work somehow into that mix if he needed to. He's got Brian Zaragoza, who has finally shaken the death flu that he had. Uh, this is absolutely a situation where it's Bochum. Even though Bochum is the home side, you should be able to go in there and win. I know that's asking a lot these days. But if there was ever a time you were going to rest Leroy Zane, it's now. you got to give this guy a reboot. And and I will say this, and I've been very upfront about my opinions on Zane from the beginning. I've always felt he's an immense talent. Back when, when Brazo went on this year-and-a-half-long hunt to get him, I was very skeptical of it because I did not think Zane was ever going to be the kind of player that could commit to playing both ways, that he would be able to consistently be consistent. <laughs> I know that's redundant, but hey, what do you think? I'm just sitting here spewing out words, right? I think he would, I always thought he would struggle with his consistency. And I thought at his highs, he was among the best in the world, but at his lows, he can weigh a team down. And I think that's what we're starting to see is that the Leroy Zane that we've seen this season, that's who he is. At his best, he's great. But then you go through these long extended periods where he loses confidence, where he can't make a good decision on the pitch, where he makes mistakes. And his, hey, listen, his finishing is never going to be at the level where I think everybody wants it. But right now he's struggling. And when you're throwing out Musiala, who's been struggling with his finishing, and two of your four attackers are, are struggling like Musiala and Zane have with their finishing, it's very tough to get goals. And, and that's why this has all been maddening because you know, anybody that's watched knows Zane is, is, is tired. You have to give the guy a break. And moving forward, I do think, even with the recent stories we've seen about Zane and how he, Gnabry, Goretzka are three of the players that will be really under the microscope for the rest of the season, I don't think they need to be. You know what they are at this point. All three players have tremendous highs, <laughs> terrible lows, and too often they get embattled with slumps. And for Zane, I think it's just a matter, if Bayern Munich wants to continue forward with him, they're going to have to understand that you're probably going to get 50% to 65% of a good season. You're, he's going to struggle for at least a third. And that's just how it's going to be. And they might be okay with that. And listen, I don't know if I would not be okay with it. But at the same time, they have budget decisions to make. They have future strategic options they need to look at in terms of long-term players at those positions. And Zane might not really fit the profile of what they're looking for. Now, what I will say about him, and as much as I doubted the move would work initially, I will say he came in under Hansi Flick, looked like he could not care less about playing any defense. And what did Flick do? He benched him. And from that point forward, I think Zane has been a pretty damn good two-way player. Now, this season, I think we've seen some things start to creep back into his game that are concerning. Occasionally, he doesn't track back because he's pouting. He, we've seen the body language go poor. We've seen the, the gestures and the facial expressions. It's not always <laughs> been great for Zane this season. Uh, and I get it. He's frustrated. He's tired. I get all of it. But I think through his time at Bayern Munich, he has made steady improvements. I think he's gotten to the level that they anticipated. I think his highs are exactly what they wanted, this great two-way winger who could create offense for others and also finish. 
at his lows, he's a guy who can't finish, makes poor decisions on the ball, and quite frankly, can be lazy at times. Unless we've seen lazy players here. Robert Lewandowski, when he was frustrated, went from being the hardest worker on the field to the laziest player. And I get it. These guys have big egos. They're frustrated. And it does affect their motivation. Now, with Zane, Byron has big questions about what they want to do with him. I mean, do they continue onward with him, knowing they're going to have to invest even more money and knowing that you're going to get a pretty good player for most of every season? It's not a bad option, but they're also going to need to have a coach in place that's going to be able to manage him properly. And I have a feeling that behind the scenes, what we got from Tuchel in terms of playing Zane so much is that Zane communicated he wanted to be in the lineup every game. Tuchel then assessed that players like Zane and Jamal Musiala, who probably is holding a lot over the club at this point, probably had a big say in how they were going to be used, where they were going to play, and how much. And I think that's what's driving some of Tuchel's decisions. Now, it'll be interesting moving forward because now Tuchel's coaching for his life. Um, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he's probably gone either way at this point. You can't recover from some of this stuff. But it'll be very, very interesting to see how he handles Musiala and Zane. It was a step in the right direction to play Musiala at wing where he's a better player. But we'll see how he handles Zane this weekend. Will he give him a rest? We know that Zane left training early just for rest purposes earlier this week. So hopefully this is a game where he can take a seat and that he can get refreshed because when he's good, he is really good. And I think that's what Bayern Munich fans need to see because this stretch, these last, what, six, seven weeks with him, it's been tough. It's been really, really tough. And even going back to the end of the first half of the season, he, he was starting to struggle a little bit then. So hopefully he can get rejuvenated, rebooted, and pull it together. But some of the other issues that, that came up this week didn't really have to do with this season's Bayern Munich team as much as next season's. And those two things... Uh, that really stood out to me were Florian Wirtz and Teo Hernandez. Real quickly with Teo Hernandez, obviously the brother of Lucas, this would be a move in my mind that would signify that Alfonso Davies is leaving Bayern Munich. And I think if Davies gives the indication that he's out, that he's going to leave, then we will really start to see these links between Bayern and Hernandez spike. There are very few left backs in the world that could potentially match what Davies can do, and I don't even know if Teo Hernandez could even come close to it. I think that he is a good fit in a lot of ways because I think he's a, a quick, fast, athletic left back. Not Nobody's as fast as Davies, obviously, but Hernandez can give you a little bit of what Davies does. Uh, so I think that that is as good of a fit as you're going to get for the way that Bayern Munich seemingly wants to play as a club. But it will all depend and hinge on what happens with Davies and whether he goes to Real Madrid or Chelsea or wherever else he's been linked. So I think in the coming weeks, we're going to know that. I think Davies, if he makes that decision, is not going to let it drag out. I think he will get with his agent. And if they decide to move on, they'll let Bayern know, I would say probably somewhere in the April timeframe, maybe end of April, early May at the latest, I don't think this is going to drag out. I think if Davies is close to making the decision now, and we don't know, we're just speculating, but if he's close, I don't think he'll let it sit out there. So if we start to see these rumors spike, Mateo Hernandez and Bayern Munich, it could give a clear indication that things with Davies are coming to a conclusion and that there will not be an agreement reached on a new contract. So we'll keep an eye on those things with Hernandez. But overall, I think he'd be a great fit at Bayern Munich, and I think he would 
allow them, if they're going to keep this philosophy as a club with how they want their outside backs to play, I think he would be as good a replacement as you could probably get for Davies at this point. As for Florian Verts, if you go out and you get him this summer, you know, one, you're paying nine figures. Two, you're probably setting yourself up for this rumored roster overhaul that we have read so much about. You can't go out and get Verts and not rebuild your team around him. And this is what's concerning to me because I'm starting to become a person who doesn't believe that Verts and Musiala will be able to coexist either for club or country. I think they both believe they're the best number 10 in the Bundesliga. I think they both believe they're the best German number 10. Unless you have a coach coming in who's going to play two number 10s, and again, not out of the realm of possibility, there are formations where you can do that. I'm not sure they're going to be able to find a way to make it work between the two players. And I don't think it's a personality thing. I don't believe that the two guys don't like each other or anything like that. We've always seen very complimentary quotes from Verts to Musiala and vice versa. But I think their playing styles, while different, are similar in how they approach the game. And I think they would become almost redundant on the pitch. The only way I could really see it working is if Musial decided he would embrace a move to wing full time, which I don't think is going to happen. He seems to be pretty set on being a 10. So do you go out? Do you get verts? Do you spend the nine figures on him? Do you push the envelope? get him, and then really start to rebuild your roster, knowing that it might take a year or two before you can get to where you want to be. It's a huge decision because if you go out and get him, it's, it is the biggest swing of all swings. We all thought that with Harry King last summer. But if you're going out and you're getting verts, you're now signaling to everyone, this is our guy for the next decade. We're building around him. Every move that we make from this point forward is going to revolve around whether that player fits with Florian Verts and how those two will work together. It would be massive, and it would be a really a really club-defining move in so many ways. And honestly, and this might sound weird, I'm not even huge on Verts. I I think he's been really good this season. I don't think he's been good for the German national team at all. And I know you can't really gauge anything on that because who's been good for Germany of late, but I think I need to see more. I don't think I'm quite ready to say, let's go spend a hundred million dollars and reform the future of this club. I know a lot of people are, and there are so many good and dynamic things about versus game, but he's still young. There is still some way to go with his development. And I think at this point, I don't know if I'd feel 100% comfortable with the philosophy of getting him and then seeing how all the other chips fall because I do think if you get him, I mean, you don't have to worry about Thomas Muller too much at this point. I think he's got about a year left in his career before he calls it quits. But you're probably sending some messaging to Jamal Musiala that you're not going to be the 10 here anymore. And uh, I don't know how Musiala would, would feel about that. Something tells me that his phone might start ringing for some potential transfers. But Florian Verts, in many ways, is the kind of player that Byron should be looking for. I just don't know about the timing yet. And I'm not so sure that Verts is super inclined to leave Leverkusen at this moment, given the season that they've had. He might feel like he needs another year or two there just to, to get to the point where he's ready to take on such a big thing. Because let's be honest, it's not just the performance on the field that's going to matter if you're Florian Verts and you move to Bayern Munich. 
you have to be ready mentally for everything that comes along with it. All of the spotlight, all of the nonsense that we saw this week, you have to be able to deal with that. And I don't know at his age to be the focal point of all of it. I mean, right now at Bayern Munich, you have Neuer and Muller and Harry Kane absorbing a lot of that. They're not going to be there forever. I mean, Kane, maybe another season before he bolts. Like I said with Muller, he's got one more. Neuer, we know less about because he seems like he could play forever. But Verts, when he makes the move, is going to have to be ready to, I'm not even saying be the captain, but essentially be the star player and absorb everything that comes along with it. And if he's ready for it, then great. Then maybe it is the time to go out, make a splash, and rebuild this roster. But if he's not ready, you could be setting him up for failure and financially crippling your club for years to come. It, it is a terrible situation to be in, but this is why the front office and the board get paid the big bucks at Bayern Munich to make those kinds of decisions. One last segment. Uh, I will separate the entertainment part of this show. Uh, we'll be right back with that. I'll give you some quick thoughts on True Detective and Curb Your Enthusiasm from this past week. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Bavarian Podcast Works. I just wanted to give just some quick thoughts and a final segment here on our entertainment rundown. I'll start with True Detective. Uh, I actually like this episode. I gave it a 4.25 out of 5. I thought there were a lot of good things. Obviously, the ending was shocking uh, to see what Peter had to do at the end of that episode without giving away any spoilers was uh, really a season-changing move. And we are starting to learn more and more about where this plot is going. And while there does seem now that there is a logical villain here, it's the the mine company and the actions of the mine company and how they could be involved in the previous murder, there's still that little mystic outlier where we are seeing characters reference she, and we've heard, we've seen a lot of the mystic things, put it that way. And we've heard that you know, she's awake become a theme this season. Nobody has really known what that is. If I had to give my quick theory on what it means, it's that this guy Clark, who is the survivor uh, from from the laboratory where everyone was murdered, uh, it would appear to me like maybe he's lost his mind based on the killing of his girlfriend. And when he's saying she's awake, it is just him basically going crazy and killing people. Uh, that could be one conceivable way that this works out. But uh, I will say that, you know, John Hawks throughout this season has been tremendous in what is a role of just a bad guy. And we don't often see John Hawks as that bad guy, but uh, I thought he played it really well. Uh, I still don't, the chemistry between Danvers, uh, Jodie Foster, and uh, her partner there has always been, uh, in my mind, it's it's worked at times and it hasn't worked at others. And for me, it's one of the things like they're almost too strong of personalities to the way that those characters are written. It leads to too much headbutting to the point where it can take away from the writing of the show and the plot of the show. And while both actors are very strong, Jodie Foster and Callie Reese, uh, you know, Reese as Trooper Navarro, Jodie Foster as Liz Danvers, the chief there. Uh, 
the more that they butt heads in the beginning, I feel like this is going to eventually evolve into having a better relationship, a more respectful relationship as this goes along. And obviously, some of the tragedies that they have now both faced throughout this show, I like to refer to it as misery porn at times, uh, is that all of that is bringing them together. And I think that that's where this is evolving to. So all of that conflict that we saw early on between a lot of the characters is pushing more toward cohesion and i think that's a a theme that we saw with true detective season one and again this season will not touch that barely any shows could ever touch that but what we are seeing is that the way that the actors are controlling these roles and the way the storyline is starting to evolve it's getting better and i know a lot of people are very critical because it's been moving slow and that's a, a problem with some hbo shows is that they're they're reliant on having this build up to give you the background and depth of the characters and the storyline. And then they really start to accelerate. So this is about the point where things should start to take that turn. It's what we've seen in many HBO shows. And if you remember, even going back to season one of the wire, the wire regarded as one of the best shows of all time, people were very critical because it was so slow moving, but you have to sometimes enjoy that, enjoy that slow process and soak it all in and when you absorb all of that information, it makes the back end that's more action filled all the more impressive with how the writers have done it and how the actors have handled it. So I'm not ready to commit to say that that's going to happen with True Detective season four, but I feel like everything that has been happening to this point is leading up to a much faster and more impressive run toward the end to the finale of the season. So we'll see what happens. I gave you kind of my idea of what the, the ending of this season might look like just based on what we've seen. I don't know anything and I don't read spoilers because I, I genuinely want to be surprised when I watch these shows now. And a lot of times, like I don't watch a lot of shows. So I, being, you know, entering every episode fresh and not knowing is it's kind of something I look forward to. So 4.25 this week's true detective now, admittedly, as much as I think this could spike up and become a, a very good season, it could also go right down the tubes. Yeah. And I hope that doesn't happen because I hate wasting my time watching shows that, uh, you know, flame out. But we'll keep the optimism high with this one and uh, looking forward to this weekend's episode. As for Curb, uh, I was not all that happy with the first episode. Second episode got back to Curb. We had just subject matter that was typical Larry David, whether it was using the bathroom in a, uh, I guess, a, a high dollar uh, clothing store uh, to the lawn jockey at the Airbnb to how Larry had to replace it after breaking it. The whole thing. It was typical curb to where Larry gets involved in hijinks. He offends a lot of people. There's a lot of conflict. It becomes uncomfortable to watch. But there's always this ending that progresses the plot line and Larry having to plead not guilty. Uh, to me, it extended this portion of the show that's in Atlanta. Now, I personally wish they were back in Los Angeles doing this because I feel like the strongest shows that they've had, the strongest overall season plots have all revolved around Larry being in L.A., I don't know why, but it just seems like that setting is very conducive to Larry irritating the most people, getting into the most odd situations, and then having the whole thing fall apart. So uh, that's a little bit of a disappointment, but 
I have a little bit more faith in where this season is going after seeing the last episode only because it did resemble that more vintage curb type episode than what we saw in the, in the first go round. Now, while I'm making predictions on shows, I will say the one thing that I was looking at throughout this episode was that it's leading up to a court case and it would be the most Larry David move ever, right? If he ended curb the same way that he ended Seinfeld in a controversial courtroom finale with everyone who Larry is ever wrong being called back to, as a character witness to talk about how awful Larry is. Essentially what happened with Seinfeld. And we all know that the Seinfeld finale was one of the most criticized and panned finales of all time. Like people still talk about that and how disappointed they were with it. So it wouldn't shock me if Larry went to that well again just because he can so I'll be interested to see how it plays out. Gave this episode a strong four out of five. I really did like it. Uh, I thought it was funny. And again, like the, some of the subject matter they get into would is really considered offensive uh, in today's day and age, even though some of this stuff has been around forever. But how they handle it and the tact that they deal with it and how they give reactions to it from other people is it's just hilarious. And, and it's always been one of the trademarks of larry david and this show is how they can take such offensive material and make it hilariously funny and uh just again if you like curb you know this episode gave you what you wanted you had some good larry leon some good larry and jeff you had Susie and this crazy outfit she had during the first day of the episode it was really good stuff so check it out uh that'll about wrap it up for this episode of the weekend warm up. As I said, we'll have some news dropping on what we're doing strategically with the podcast network and hopefully that all wraps up soon and we can talk about it. Uh, otherwise, uh you can always get me at the Barrel Blog on Twitter. You can get the site at Bavarian FB Works. You can get our tweetmeister Tom Adams at Tommy Adams 71. You can get I need no name at BFWIN and then you can get Siler at CYL3R. You can get all of our great podcasters and writers at BavarianFootballWorks.com. Check out all of our game coverage that we'll have this weekend on the VFL Boca match. There'll be a lot to talk about with that. Of course, a lot of news dropping all about Bayern Munich and its future and its coach. There's a lot going on right now. So hang with us. Have a couple of beers on me. We'll see you next time.